Dearly beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever stopped to consider how the watching world views the members of the church? I'm sure that we've all heard accounts of a Christian brother or sister that has fallen into some grievous sin that has cast a negative light upon the church community. Some of these cases of misconduct even make the news. We read of allegations of sexual sin amongst the priesthood in the Church of Rome, and more recently similar charges have been brought to the forefront in the largest Protestant denomination in the USA, the Southern Baptist Convention. And the reason that such stories are so damaging to the cause of Christ and to his church is because the church preaches against such behavior. And when the world observes that Christians do not walk the talk, they're given an excuse to reject the gospel. But do the headlines adequately convey the impression of people who get to know faithful believers up close and personal. You see, there's another side to this story that one's rarely told that doesn't make the news headlines because it's not all that sensational. When you talk to those who've grown up outside the church and who have come to faith, One of the things that many of them will tell you is that the church members initially intimidated them. Not because they were angry or aloof or steeped in some sin, but rather because it seemed like they had it all together. And although we must admit that many problems still exist within the household of God, frequently onlookers see much that is commendable. In comparison to their own lives, the Christians seem to be coping with life much better. The lives they observe were in some sense beyond their grasp. The Christians they encountered lived ordinary lives with proper boundaries that allowed their relationships to flourish. They were good stewards of the resources that the Lord gave them. They demanded respect from their children. So on down the list. When added all together, those looking in thought that they could never measure up to those standards. So they recognized that something was different. And that realization, brothers and sisters, often elicits one of two responses. Either the individual will be intrigued and desire to know how to live such a life. Or he or she will seek to discredit the lives of the saints out of resentment and envy. Regardless of the world's response, the lifestyle that they observe is a testimony to what God's grace accomplishes in the lives of the saints. Titus begins in our reading in chapter 2 talking about the attitude and the disposition that the saints ought to have in various stations of life. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Titus goes on to give instructions to the young women and men in addition to the bond servants or slaves. 
He lays out a standard by which people of faith ought to live. And the more we conform to that standard, the more we shine forth the glory of God who works faith in our lives. And then Titus gives us several practical reasons for such dignified Christian behavior. In verse 5, he demands such conduct so that the word of God may not be reviled. And in verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And most importantly, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, Titus is calling the congregation in Crete on behalf of Christ to live a life that silences the world's objections and reflects the light of the gospel like a beautiful jewel adorning the word of God. And then in our text, he goes on to tell us why. Why we ought to live such a life which will be the focus of our sermon this morning. Therefore, I preach to you God's word under the following theme and points. Because the grace of God has dawned, we live by grace, we hope for glory, and we act in purity. Let me repeat that for you. Because the grace of God has dawned, we live by grace, we hope for glory, and we act in purity. Beloved, this morning our text focuses squarely upon the grace of God. That's the reason that Paul gives for the saints to live an upward lifestyle in accordance with sound doctrine. He's called the saints at Crete to not only believe the truth of the gospel, but also to live it out. He starts in chapter 2, verse 1, encouraging Titus to teach what is doctrinally sound. But he quickly switches gears to show that such sound doctrinal knowledge should transform the lives of the saints so that their confession will shine through not just in words, but also in deeds. Beloved, we've all been instructed in the doctrines of grace as taught here in this Christian church. We've attended catechism and Bible study and we hopefully are attending church on a regular basis. But is all that knowledge making its way from your head to your heart and then directing your hands? Is the knowledge of salvation shaping your thoughts, influencing your desires, and working its way out in faithful living that shines forth the glorious work of your Savior? Well, that's what Paul's all on about. Paul says it ought to. And he explains to us why. Our text in verse 11 begins with that little word for, indicating that he's about to state the theological grounds for what he has declared in verses 1 through 10 about the proper conduct of believers. And the reason that he cites as the basis for living a faithful Christian life is the grace of God has appeared. Fully grasp the significance of that statement, we need to refresh our memory regarding what the grace of God really is. Sometimes we use that word rather flippantly. But really what grace is, it is God's undeserved kindness whereby he saves lost sinners 
giving them unmerited salvation. To put it another way, God's grace is his active favor, wherein he bestows the greatest gift to those who deserved the greatest punishment. I recall the late R.C. Sproul once said that we should not be surprised by any manner of sin. But what should surprise us is the undeserved grace of God. The depths of human depravity can imagine all sorts of evil. So that we can expect virtually any wicked act from the ranks of humanity. But what should shock us is the depths to which our Lord and Savior was willing to go to shower upon us His undeserved mercy and grace. Our sin was not just some outward blemish that could be overlooked. In ourselves, we were vile and rebellious, living in opposition to our God, rotten to the core. And there was nothing in us that made us desirable to God. So, what that means, brothers and sisters, is that His grace was completely and utterly undeserved. That's why Paul describes the appearing of the grace of God with such glowing terms. The word in Greek translated as has appeared loses some of its luster in translation. It conveys more the sense of an epiphany, a sudden and dramatic awakening like the rising of the sun on a dark morning. What was dark and indiscernible is suddenly and plainly seen in the brilliance of the sun. That's exactly what the situation was like when our Lord and Savior appeared in the midst of humanity's spiritual night. The prophet Isaiah foresaw His coming and declared the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And Jesus himself declared, as recorded in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will be the light of life. And our text implies that with the dawning of Christ's coming, salvation had come to the people of God. And as our text states, bringing salvation for all people. Now this might raise a question in your mind as to whether every single person will receive salvation. A concept also known as universal salvation. But it's clear from other passages of scripture that some will be saved and others condemned. So what do we make of this statement by Paul? In order to make sense of our text we need to understand this phrase all people within its context. In verses 1 through 10... Paul talks about several groups of people, older men and women, younger men and women, as well as slaves. And so what Paul has in view is that the glorious message of the gospel is not restricted to any particular group or class of people. Rather, the free gift of grace is open to all types of people, from all walks of life, regardless of age, gender, or social class. And so in addition to opening up salvation for all people, the dawning of the grace of Christ has the power to transform us. Verse 12 of our text goes on to inform us that the grace that was revealed in Jesus Christ trains us. The Greek word used here is the same root used in our English word for pedagogy, meaning teaching, 
might mean something to the teachers in our midst, but for those that aren't, I'll explain a little bit. This is the word often used by teachers to describe a method of instruction. In the Greek world, it referred to the teaching of children who needed step-by-step instructions. Gradually following the prescribed method, the grace of God changes us. Every day, we consider what we were, lost, groping in the darkness, deeply in need of deliverance. And then we are amazed once again at what our Lord and Savior did to restore our broken lives. We're taught to turn our backs on the old way of life, to flee the darkness and walk in the light of Christ. That's why Paul says the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. This is a reminder for us all that though we are professing Christians, we're not yet perfect Christians. The work of being made holy, also known as sanctification, is still ongoing and will continue until we are taken to be with our Lord. Therefore, each and every one of us needs to be busy with the means of grace, namely the preaching of the gospel and the participation in the sacraments. These are the tools that Christ gave us to remind us continually of the grace of God. They place the reality of God's grace squarely before our eyes so that by its light we may see. But not just to see and understand, but also to be trained by that knowledge. And that's to be the pattern of our lives in this present age, by which Paul means the in, from the incarnation of Christ when he first took on human flesh until he returns once again. But the grace of God is not just intended to instruct us for this present age. It also teaches us to long for the age to come. That brings us to our second point. Because the grace of God has dawned, we hope for glory. Congregation, the action of verse 12, namely the training, is intended to instruct us in how we should live today in this present gospel age, but it also teaches us what we should hope for in the future. And what that looks like is not the typical longing of the world around us. There are countless thousands who want nothing more than to be successful in this life, where they reach their career goals, amass a healthy bank account, travel the world, or revel in fame and fortune. But they gave little, little thought to their eternal aspirations. Paul says that the grace of God not only needs to transform our day-to-day living so that we do not live like the rest of humanity, but it also changes the things that we are looking forward to. If we put this in perspective, it really makes a lot of sense. Just imagine a king who's gone off to fight a foreign nation in order to overthrow a tyrant who has been oppressing the people of the land. When the reports come in that your king, who fought on your behalf, has won a decisive victory, removing the threat of oppression, you might describe that knowledge as the dawning of a new day in the kingdom. 
Not only does it put a new spring in your step and make you willing to put in your best effort for king and country, but it also awakens in you a longing for the return of the king. You're anxious to share in the full benefits and effects of the victory, and that can only happen when the monarch returns. Beloved, that's how it is for those in this life who are under grace. We feel the effects now of Christ's victory upon the cross, but not fully, only in part. The knowledge that Christ in His love and mercy has valiantly defended our cause, defeating sin and death on our behalf when we were unworthy sinners, chained by our iniquities, destined to suffer the curse of God's judgment. Well, it opens our eyes. And in the light of God's grace, we are being transformed. But don't you long to experience His victory fully and completely? Do you wish for the day when all the pain and the suffering of this mortal life will be silenced once and for all? Well, beloved, we wait for that day with eager expectation. Our text says we are waiting for this very thing, the blessed hope. You will notice that the remainder of the verse defines what that blessed hope is. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when He appears, he will re- we will receive the fullness of His saving grace. 1 John 3 verses 1 through 3 testifies to this hope as well when it declares to us, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we will know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. The grace which dawned with Christ's first coming will shine with the brightness of the noonday sun on the day when he returns. And we will rejoice in his glory because we as his children will share in all the surpassing brilliance of his victory. God's grace purifies us and works in us the hope of Christ's return. And with such a glorious future shining on the horizon, shouldn't that instill into the people of God a deep and sincere desire to live for Him and for His honor and glory? That brings us to our final point. Because the grace of God has dawned, we act in purity. You see, brothers and sisters, the grace of God has dawned through the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that grace trains us to turn away from ungodliness, to embrace an upright and godly life, whereby we long for the return of Christ. Verse 14 of our text confirms that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What does that mean for us here today in 2019? 
Well, beloved, the current age in which we live dawned some 2,000 years ago on Calvary, where God gave his everything for us who had nothing. He gave his one and only Son to save that which was undeserving of salvation. And by his grace, he redeemed a people for himself. And what makes this act even more amazing is that he did it willingly for those who were unwilling. They were a people weighed down in their sin, enslaved in the desires of the flesh, rebels unwilling to conform to the lawgiver of the universe. But he changed all that, instilling in us a new desire, washing us and cleansing us from all the filth and grime, making us into something beautiful and desirable, a people for his own. What a privilege that Christ has shown his grace to you personally. Each and every one of you sitting here today. Have you considered, brothers and sisters, there is nothing more precious to any man or woman in this life than to have the claim of Christ laid upon you. The watching world may not broadcast it on the news, but you can be assured that they are taking notice of how you respond to that rich measure of grace that God is giving Beloved, when the grace of God has dawned in your life and your Savior is busy training you in righteousness, it works in you a certain kind of response that Paul is reminding Titus about. Sometimes we can be very robotic about our response to God's grace. We know what it is up here, intellectually, in our head, and we know how the Bible calls us to respond through faithful living. And yet our actions aren't Rooted in the grace of God. Our response should not be one of reluctant obligation where I serve my Lord and Master because it's the thing I ought to do. No, Paul has something else in mind. Paul wants your response to be rooted in the instruction of grace. Those set apart as his own possession are to be eager, or as our text says, zealous for good works. And what is it that produces such zeal? The knowledge of the grace of God. What our Savior did for us. It's impossible that if you really grasp the depths of His love in His sacrifice on the cross, that your response can merely be one based on formality. That knowledge must train our heads, our hearts, In our hands. Congregation, does the grace of Christ dominate your vision? I'm afraid we've often fallen short here. North America, we have abundance. We have a hard time with this simple concept. Many of us are quite self-reliant. We rarely have known any real need or want. Those in difficult and trying circumstances living on the edge between life and death who've been singled out and shown mercy, deep sense of gratitude and an overwhelming desire to give back. Beloved, in ourselves, we weren't living on the edge spiritually. No, it was actually worse than that. Now, we were spiritually dead. 
And Christ died to make us spiritually alive. If that doesn't produce a deep sense of gratitude in your heart, that compels you to zealously, with all your heart, live for your Lord and Savior, then you need some more training at the feet of your gracious Savior. So, congregation, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to learn from the letter to Titus. Let the grace of Christ instruct you. Let the light of His grace guide your vision and so live as Christ's treasured possession, redeemed and purified, ready to zealously work for Him and for His glory. Amen.